I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of The Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from The First Witch's Dance by Robert Johnson. At the end of this podcast, you can listen to this piece complete, along with some other court mask dances that might have been revived for the public stage. And this is part of a series of podcasts supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Speminalium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University on the interaction between the court mask and the public theatre companies in the time of Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, and their contemporaries. In the Mask of Queens, which was performed in 1609 at King James's Whitehall Palace, author Ben Jonson introduces an anti-mask of grotesque witches who act as the antithesis of the great queens of history we're about to meet, who were played in the mask by Queen Anne herself and the great ladies of the court. By having witches as the great ladies' foil, Jonson caters to King James's special interest in witchcraft and demonology. But as you'll hear, witches had been on stages for many years and in many places. In this episode, I'll be speaking to two guests. Natalia Kumenko teaches English at York University and Glendon College. She's published on Medieval Lives of the Virgin Martyrs, depictions of Elizabethan witches and the interpretation of Shakespeare in Soviet Russia. V.K. Preston is assistant professor at the Centre for Drama, Theatre and Performance Studies at the University of Toronto. She has also published about witches and is working on a book on French court ballets, the French form contemporary with and corresponding to the English court mask. VK spoke to us from her home, where she was in self-isolation due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Natalia, everybody knows about the witches in Macbeth, but you've got some earlier witches from us, uh, from a, a comedy concerning three laws of nature, Moses and Christ, corrupted by sodomites, Pharisees and papists. That's quite a handle for a play. It's got witches in there in addition to all those things. Tell us about this play. Well, this is a play by uh, John Bale, who uh, was uh, originally a Catholic monk um, and a hagiographer. And after the Reformation, he uh, embraced um, the new direction, the new religious direction with a great zeal and uh, became an ardent reformer. And so, among other things, uh, he wrote uh, this particular comedy, uh, which is very clearly modeled on earlier morality plays. It's got uh, allegorical characters, um, and it has uh, it has one character um, whose name is um, Idolatry. Uh, in the text of the play, she's called uh, Idololatria Necromantica, um, and uh, in the directions. Um, to the play, uh, we're told that she should be decked like an old witch. So this is uh, a very early witch character in Renaissance drama. Mm-hmm. And it's 15, it's very early indeed, it's 1538, right? Yes. So, yes. so it's before the Reformation in England really kicks into high gear after Henry dies. So it's very early. Well, it's uh, it's the first it's the first wave really, right? Mm-hmm. So this is uh, when Henry uh, is publishing uh, the first English Bibles, right? And before he enforces, he starts enforcing uh, various uh, uh, limits uh, on how far the Reformation can be taken before it kind of turns uh, back. But um, back to back to John Bale. Anyway, go and tell us more about him and his work. Uh, so uh, John Bale's. Uh, 
idolatria necromantica or, or idolatry is very clearly intended to, to represent a Catholic superstition. And uh, so this is a very early link uh, between witchcraft and uh, what is seen as medieval uh, beliefs uh, or medieval Christianity. Um, and so this particular character uh, first um, appears uh, in Act 2 of the play um, and is described uh, as a wholesome woman uh, who can perform various kinds of sorceries and charms. And so these are typical abilities uh, of uh, Renaissance witches. Mm -hmm. uh, she can uh, cure toothache, for example. Uh, she can, uh, we're also told, uh, fetch all that is lost. And uh, it's specified that she does these things without the help of the Holy Ghost in mm. working she's alone. We, um, in the previous episode, I was talking to Linda Austern about uh, healing and uh, especially the musical properties of healing in Pericles. And the woman of the house or the local uh, wise woman would be responsible for healing in some ways. And so we can see... Uh, this local wise woman, it might be an old crone, and then somebody in town might not like her, and then eventually she goes from just being the local wise woman who can heal you to the local, to uh, the local witch. You could see how that's a continuum going along. Well, that's not necessarily true if you look at uh, the 16th century witchcraft cases, mm. right? So this is often. Um, Sometimes this is how witchcraft is imagined in literature, uh, but uh, if you're working through the actual cases, uh, you will see that uh, uh, usually the women who heal and the women who are trusted um, are not the women who come up in the witchcraft oh. cases, right? Um, because uh, a lot of these cases, or most of these cases really, are started from bottom up, so there needs to be a local accusation. Uh, from someone uh, who feels injured uh, or has a grudge uh, against a particular uh, local woman or a man or a man. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, what you have, uh, especially in the late 16th century in uh, Protestant treatises is specifically an attempt to prove uh, to the locals that they are no good witches, right? So very clearly, this is the view that theologians have, right? That all mm -hmm. witches or mm -hmm. all healers are bad, uh, but it is not the view that is shared locally. Uh, do you want to tell us then a little, is there anything else you want to say about idolatry and how she's demonstrated to be a witch? What are some other things about her that show her witchiness or aspects of her witchiness? Um, well, <clears throat> um, it's uh, it seems to be that's primarily her um, links uh, to the Catholic ritual. Uh, so she says, mm. for example, that she ne I never miss but palter our Blessed Lady's Psalter before Saint Saviour's altar with my beads once a day. Um, and this is not unusual. Um, so even Shakespeare, right, since you mentioned Macbeth earlier, mm. so Shakespeare's uh, Henry VI, part one, uh, offers us the figure of uh, uh, Joan of Arc, Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, is initially introduced uh, as a kind of virgin martyr or as a saint, but throughout the play she's progressively uh, revealed uh, to be uh, a witch, right? And so she becomes a very stereotypical Renaissance witch, uh, complete with familiars. She actually, she has uh, spirits wow. appearing uh, whom she promises to feed from her own body. Wow, so, uh, so apologies to any French listeners. Uh, <laughs> Uh, about Joan of Arc. It's uh, not uh -huh. her fault, it's Shakespeare's. 
I think um, that it, phenomenon is quite common, though, in some of these um, performances, that you have characters who appear to be one form of uh, human or semi-supernatural being, and in the course of the work, the indices happen in staged ways so that we understand them to be more maleficent, and I agree that it has a relationship to theology and negotiating which acts are authorized in a theological sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Uh, we should say, uh, I'm just going to throw this guy's work out there now. So that, uh, in 1597, James VI of Scotland, as he was then, soon to be James I of England, uh, publishes Demonology, Demonology, which is, he's witch crazy. But as we've seen, these, these witches are, um, are already exist before James comes to the throne. Uh, so it's not all on him, all these witches. Uh, t- uh, tell us about uh, Reginald Scott's discovery of witchcraft, What uh, uh, published in 1584. Tell us about that. Right. Uh, so Reginald Scott uh, is often seen as one of the early skeptics. Uh, but in fact, he's not, I wouldn't say that he's super unusual. So he publishes his discovery of witchcraft. We don't know very much about him as an author. He publishes uh, one more work that has, has nothing to do with witchcraft and has to do with gardening. Uh, <coughs> yes, yes. It's, uh, clearly the two are... Uh, Linked somewhere. Yes. Uh, but uh, discovery of witchcraft is a fascinating work. Um, it does not only focus on witchcraft. He also talks about about uh, tricksters for example or people who fool others with cards uh, and mm. with, yes with magic tricks uh, but uh, he uh, his argument um, is not um, is not very far from the argument of someone like uh, Gifford for example who's Gifford um, he's a, um, a Protestant uh, uh, writer who uh, produces uh, a couple of treatises on witchcraft and so he's the one who argues among others that uh, there are no good witches right that uh, mm-hmm. uh, local healers are also implicated in satanic worship in one way or another but uh, the point that i would like to make is that there is a commonly held view that witches don't really possess any power so in essence scott and uh, and gifford and a number of other people argue that witches themselves are deluded Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, devil tricks them into believing that they can curse and harm others. Uh, but in fact, uh, they are simply flawed Christians. Right? Mm-hmm. So there is no need to be afraid of them or, or to prosecute them for any harm to others because they're incapable. They're powerless. Uh, yes, yes, precisely. All, pa- all power comes from, from God. Um, There's also a very interesting way in which this is um, part of a print dispute. So you have different intellectuals in different moments writing, in a sense, across time to one another. Some of them make certain claims about witchcraft. Others, as in discovery of witchcraft, sort of point towards manifestations like sleight of hand, um, dealing cards, basic tricks that people could play in a public forum. And the negotiation goes back and forth. So you'll have, even as late as the end of the 17th century in the Salem trials, um, the former president of Harvard University making the claim, too, that the witches can't perform miracles. And this sort of sense that these are inversions of of sacraments and kinds of um, ritual behavior within the church then goes through a kind of uh, intensive scrutiny to say, are these indications of performatives that do are they um are they felicitous actions done by somebody who in a sense has an authority to perform or are they um false 
acts with no power. And so then you have all sorts of cases where people are then either observed or there's a kind of classical um, commonplace kind of strategy of describing all of the known knowledge about particular actions to, to decide whether or not they are, for example, miracles or not miracles, which is an interesting one with Joan of Arc as well. So that you have this debate happening within the print sphere about whether or not these actions um, have particular power or not. Mm-hmm. Just to add to that, um, yes, uh, I agree entirely. And Reginald Scott, interestingly, has a chapter, of course, named The Age of Miracles is Past, where he just assumes before he begins his discussion that miracles are no longer possible. Um, but he also, and this is something that's particularly interesting to me because uh, I work on virgin martyrs in particular, but he um, links uh, the early modern perception of witches to the medieval perception of saints. Uh, and he talks, for example, about uh, Saint Cecilia, uh, the, uh, the well-known Catholic saint. Uh, and Patroness talks... of music, so you don't, yeah. don't diss her, don't stand for it. <laughs> yes, but, well, you, you and Reginald Scott would have had something to discuss, because he refers to her Vita, in which she has an angel appearing to her and instructing her, and calls this angel her familiar. Mm. So he suggests that uh, uh, what used to be seen as... Uh, uh, narratives of saints were, in fact, uh, misrecognitions of witch stories, Goodness witch me. narratives. Another phenomenon you have with it is where it's more connected with um, ideas of possession or demonology or demons, which can and cannot be an, an analogous case, is that you also have the beginning of uh, doctors publishing on their opinions on this as well. So is this truly a voice coming to the person? Can a doctor in scrutinizing the patient be able to tell whether or not they have a, a sort of non-human being speaking to them, or is it something that they're feigning? They don't usually then refer to another illness category as such, but that there is this idea that by observing these people receiving messages in different ways very closely, that you have the beginnings of certain kinds of discourses in medicine and theology and so on. Law as well. Uh, now, do I understand this correctly? Um, discovery of witchcraft is used by theatre folk. Can one of you talk about that? It's usually assumed uh, that uh, early modern playwrights uh, do draw on the discovery of witchcraft. Um, so I've encountered uh, the suggestion that uh, Macbeth in particular um, just uh, borrows some of the descriptions of witches from it, uh, in particular their asexual nature or seemingly asexual nature. Uh, Middleton potentially does as well. There seems to be a, a kind of blur happening where you have, instead of saying these are real phenomena that all of a sudden something can appear, it's sort of deconstructed a little bit to show that in fact this is something that can be done through sleight of hand, etc. So it, it breaks down the potential stagecraft or street performance to show that there's a way that it can be done without involving something supernatural. But you end up with a discussion about how these kinds of um, uh, seemingly miraculous events may be created by human performers. Um, let me tell you now then about some of the pieces you're, that people are going to hear at the end of our yakking here. We've got two dances, uh, the witch's dance, for which first witch's dance and the second dan witch's dance. 
which were uh, composed for the Mask of Queens, a, a mask, court mask by Ben Jonson, uh, 1609, and the title says, The Mask of Queens celebrated from the House of Fame by the Queen of Great Britain. So Queen Anne is right in there. Uh, with her ladies at Whitehall, February 2nd, 1609. So on another episode, I've described how there's two sources that we're using. There's only a very few sources for the mask music. And the main one is a manuscript called British Library Manuscripts Additional 10444. And it's only in two parts, the treble and the bass. And then these dances are in concordances, uh, some printed in Germany by a guy called William Brada, some printed in Germany by a guy called William Brada, some printed in Germany by a guy called Thomas Simpson, some printed in England by John Adson. We're playing from these William Brada versions. Brada's an Englishman who moved, it was very trendy in North Germany to have an English dancing master running your violin dance band. Uh, the first witch's dance is called in Brada's 1617 publication, uh, Der Hexentanz, uh, the witch's dance, but uh, some of the dances which we've been playing, uh, they're called uh, one thing in the English source, and then they're called something completely different in Brada. Uh, the nymph's dance is called the Mascarada de Edelfrauen, the dance of the noble woman. And we're not playing the baboon's dance, uh, but astonishingly in Brada, it's called the entry of the young princesses. Uh, so, the, so the first of the witches we're playing in Brada's version for five-part violin band. And then the second of the witches is only in this additional 10444 manuscript. So we only have the treble and bass. And Chris Verrett, our leader, the violinist, wrote the three viola parts in, in the style that Brada uses. And so that's sort of reconstructed from this source. Uh, let me uh, let me read for you. I've read this in another episode as well, but it's so great. What Ben Johnson says about the witches' dance. Uh, this is in the uh, sort of script and description of the uh, Queen's Mask that I just read the title of. At which, with a strange and sudden music, they fell into a magical dance full of preposterous change and gesticulation. <laughs> but most applying to their property, who at their meetings do all things contrary to the custom of men, dancing back to back and hip to hip, their hands joined and their, uh, making their circles backward, so walking, dancing counterclockwise, making their circles backwards to the left hand with a strange, fantastic motion of their heads and bodies, all which were excellently imitated by the maker of the dance, Mr. Ger Jeremy Hearn, whose right it is here to be named. So in this first episode in this series, Stephen Orgel was say, uh, pointing out that the uh, professional dancers and actors of the King's Men were the people speaking and dancing in the anti-mask. And it's believed that uh, uh, some of these mask dances, particularly the anti-mask ones, which would have the professionals, would be just moved onto the stage. And it's, uh, it's believed that these witches' dances from Queen's Mask became the witches' dances in Middleton's The Witch. And then uh, when Middleton appears to have revised Macbeth and a chunk of his words are put into Macbeth, the song Come Away Hecate, in fact, is extant in a version by a man called Robert Johnson, who wrote a lot of these songs uh, for The Tempest and Macbeth mm -hmm. and others. 
so it's believed that this, uh, these, these dances were then interpolated into uh, Macbeth. And uh, Anne Day, in, in a recently published uh, Oxford Handbook of Shakespeare and Dance, talks about Hearn's career and suggests he may have even been in one of the boys' company was a, when he was a boy. I had a look at the essay as well, and I liked very much that she also proposes, because she points out that he's particularly well-paid as a composer. And oh, this it's unbelievable. Be... It's unbelievable. John Dowland got £40 a year. These, these, All of these choreographers were just getting stupid amounts of money. <laughs> John Dowland got £40 a year. He's the most famous lute player in Europe, probably the, one of the most famous musicians in Europe. He was getting £40 a year at court. Um, uh, one of these guys, for coming over from France, got a £500 signing bonus. That's not his salary, just for coming over. Thanks for coming over. Here's £500. More than 10 times the annual salary of one of the most famous musicians in Europe. Uh, the, when you see the printed version of The Mask of Queens, uh, down the middle is uh, the actual s uh, speeches and description of what goes on. And then either side in the margins are all these things where Ben Johnson is saying, oh, and this description, the witches are doing this now because it's talked about in this book. Uh, in, uh, uh, and this, they're doing this now because it's talked about in this book. And one of the sources he uses, of course, is uh, demonology. And you can see that these notes are just really directed at James. He's really trying to ingratiate himself with James with these notes around. But I think uh, going back to what Stephen Orgel said again, that these masks are uh, just power play. They're just demonstrations of power. So even in the printing of this thing, he's demonstrating the, the production of them is all about power. And in fact, the publishing of them afterwards and these notes are all, yes, you're very important, King James. It's another uh, expression of power. So Jeremy Hearn's uh, uh, one choreographer and a very important one, but many of the dancing masters uh, were French. One of the dances we did in, for the first episode of this was the first of the Lord's dances thought to be one of the prop, the mask proper dances where the aristocrats come out and dance in a very dignified manner. But in another, so that's called the First of the Lords in additional 10444. It's called just a ballet in Brada's version of it. But in a lute version that I play in our second series, it's called Antic Mask Per Mr. Confesso, set by Mr. Taylor. So the, the original music's by John Caprario, an Englishman with a fake Italian name. Uh, this antic mask, the Per Mr. Confesso, he's the choreographer, and the Mr. Taylor is the guy who arranged it for the lute. So it seems strange to me that what is in other sources appears to be a, uh, a mask proper dance is called an antic or an anti-mask dance in this source. And this lute source that it's in, it's a well-connected source. Uh, John Dowland is her lute teacher. She has access to people who would know who were doing these things at, at court. So this is an, our arrangement of this sort of smushing together the lute version and this version in additional 10444. And we're trying to do it as sort of a parody of the dignified mask dance. We do it in a very clunky manner, sort of stumbles along in 3-4 and 4-4 four, four at the same time. So I hope you like that. Mr. Confesso, 
appears to be one of these French choreographers. Nicolas Confess or Confet, he worked on Oberon with uh, Jeremy Hearn in 1610. And he's described as a musician to the Queen in a French baptism document when he goes back to France. He seems to be going back and forth. Uh, Jacques or James Buchan or Bocan worked as a violinist and a dancing master in Henry, Prince of Wales' household and also worked for Queen Anne. And he definitely was traveling back and forth uh, and uh, worked in uh, Love Free from Ignorance, Ignorance and Folly with Confess. And Sebastian Lapierre taught Henry and Charles dancing. Adam Vallée was a lutenist, a violinist, violinist and dancing master. So very commonly, these guys would be playing violin in the dance band and also acting as the dancing master as well. VK, you know a lot about French ballets. These guys were back and forth. Henrietta Maria comes over uh, to get married to Prince Charles. Tell us all about uh, French ballets and how they differ and are similar to the English uh, court mask. One of the things that's interesting is I think we look to different kinds of evidence when we look at the French and English traditions. So when I look at another piece from that period, which is the Livret, which would be uh, not unlike these Ben Johnson documents, for a piece called the Ballet de la Délivrance de Renault, the Ballet of the Deliverance of Renault, it def- it refers to the piece also as a mask, or at least it refers to the costumes as masking. So I think there's a fairly good case. I wouldn't want to sort of absolutely conflate the traditions, but a fairly good case to say what we think of as part of the dance tradition in France, and the theater tradition in um, in a British tradition. Um, may actually have very deeply shared genealogies. And as you say, they also include the personnel, the composers, the stagecraft, um, and the dancing techniques. So I wonder sometimes how much the different ways that the Protestant and Catholic ways of treating images actually affect the way that we remember the forms. Um, Mm -hmm. In the French context, there are lots of images. In the British context, I think there are fewer. Of course, Inigo Jones is very important. Um, He also looks, it's very clear that he has a a direct relationship to the images that are being made in France at the time, which are... You mean mean in his his costume design and um, stage, uh, stage scenery? Exactly. So he has these completely amazing designs, and there are similar bodies or collections of designs for masking and masquerade and ballets that are in French collections. Um, And there's more indication, I think, in the French traditions of the stage within those. Um, I'd be very curious and, and would love to know more about the relationship between the seeming lack of images for the public theater and the seeming multiplicity of images for private and court theater and how much that has to do really with uh, the different ways that documents are kept over time and the value of those documents, for example, with the closure of the theaters that happens in England not that Mm -hmm. far after this, that if they have a relationship to profane acts and if they have a relationship to images that's complicated, it's possible they didn't survive if they existed. And that's mm-hmm. not so much the case with the French tradition. So there, there's a lot of image making. Um, and there are extant scores. And what you have are these, um, they're called livres. And they're booklets that have music and images and printed text. And there are a number of those um, for important works. 
It's also really clear that it's a popular tradition. It's not only that the ballets happen at court. Um, the ballets are beautifully documented for what happens at court, but there are references uh, to very ordinary people holding these kinds of, I would even dare say, parties. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we did see that we, we in, in one of the episodes. We talked about um, Sir Henry Unton's funeral picture, where uh, one of the uh, scenes in that is there's a little mask happening around. Uh, Henry Unton and his friends are sitting around a table playing a broken consort, and around him are wa- wa- uh, walking, processing these children in mask costumes with uh, diaphanous gowns and everything. So it does look, uh, they, they do look, uh, for a household entertainment, it does look pretty uh, extravagant. Uh, certainly nothing like that ever happens in my apartment, I can tell you. <laughs> well, it's also interesting that they're very much linked to Carnival. And so, mm-hmm. and not just an, a single event in Carnival, but a period from December through Lent. And so you end up with a lot of different popular traditions that can involve dressing up in winter culture. And some of that is really body, and it, it's getting suppressed in different moments and in different ways in England and France, but it's certainly not um, without censorship in France as well. And so you get the sense that we're getting a particularly refined version that gets interrupted with these uh, disorderly, raucous, possibly very fun interjections all the way through and they they within the dramaturgy of the pieces need to be suppressed in a certain way as well before the performance ends but there's a clearly pleasure in these bad dances sure i mean you'd go home thinking about the baboons and the witches uh, although the busby berkeley style dance of these well-ordered courtiers at the end will will be impressive as well. I'm sure everybody went home and talked about the uh, the baboons and, and the apes and the uh, witches. It's been said that after James arrives that the continental and Scottish or non-English depictions of the witches start creeping in through Mask of Queens and uh, the witch and Macbeth. Um, well, a couple of things. Uh, so first, I just very quickly want to say that uh, when James I takes the throne, uh, on the one hand, as you suggested, uh, there is definitely a sense that the new king is very interested in witchcraft. Um, as you pointed out, he published his own work on demonology and was translated into English, was originally in Latin, I think three times. Um, uh, very uh, sort of around the time, and two of these translations were published around the time of his ascension to the throne. Um, and definitely uh, his, uh, his book is being referenced at the time. So in that sense, the Scottish tradition and uh, the continental and the classical traditions uh, James draws on in his volume are also seeping into the English literary tradition. Uh, But at the same time, and uh, there has been quite a bit of work done on that, Um, I was just rereading James Sharp, for example, who shows that uh, James, very soon after ascending to the throne, also becomes involved uh, in the more skeptical approach towards cases of witchcraft uh, or possession. And so, as VK pointed out, uh, this is uh, the time when uh, doctors become involved in this conversation. Um, and uh, their attempts uh, either to identify some of the 
cases as medical conditions, uh, sort of and diagnose the conditions or describe the symptoms. Uh, there are also attempts uh, to offer more realistic explanations or even tests, right? So mm -hmm. if, for example, a particular case of possession is claiming uh, to react to the presence of the witch, uh, you know, one might uh, uh, you know, blindfold her or put her behind a curtain and have different people enter and then see whether the yeah. possessed reacts. And so in that sense, James is also associated uh, with uh, an increase in an emphasis on discernment, right? mm -hmm. so which is again, almost a more scientific yes. by their standards approach to uh, to uh, witch hunting, if we're yes. going to call it that. Yes, precisely. Uh, I also wanted to say that uh, despite uh, these changes, there are also certain consistent features right, that uh, remain from uh, the 16th to the 17th century in, uh, in the descriptions of English witchcraft. And so uh, one of them uh, is uh, an interest in images. So in the Mask of Queens, uh, one of the charms refers to the pictures of wax and wool. Uh, that are being stuck with needles. Um, and if we look at uh, the note there that Johnson himself makes, he says that uh, this is uh, a reference, among other things, of certain pictures of wax found in the dunghill of our mm -hmm. late queens, which rumor I myself, being then very young, can yet remember to have been current. And this is a reference to the case in 1578, uh, when I think three wax images were found in a dunghill, and there was a, a suspicion that this is uh, this was. Um, Voodoo. And, well, yes, kind of. <laughs> An enchantment, a uh, malicious enchantment directed against Queen Elizabeth. John Dee got on the case. It oh. turned out to be something else entirely, but um, uh, clearly Johnson remembers it uh, specifically um, as a case of witchcraft against, uh, directed against the monarch. And so one of the other things that is consistent is this link um, of witchcraft uh, to a larger sense or broader sense of English patriotism. So a sense that these are malicious forces uh, working against um, the great king or the great queen. The great king and the great queen and the champion of Protestantism. Yes. Yes. Or retroactively, you know, if we're applying this to Joan of Arc, mm -hmm. uh, Joan of Arc, uh, who comes in confrontation with, you know, with the English, uh, with England, but also with the Talbot, who is representing the English army mm -hmm. in the play. Mm -hmm. uh, so witches change across time in England. VK, do you want to say anything about how witches are different in England to how they are in France? Well, some of the markers are similar and some of the markers are different. And what we see in the Mask of Queens is reference to, among other sources on the continent or um, certainly in France. There, it has a very particular character related, as we were just discussing, to questions of political sorcery is one term. So if you talk about what opposes the state... You can certainly have accusations that, for example, an individual is affecting a queen or an individual is affecting somebody within the court in a way that subverts the court and in a sense is almost the ultimate rebellion. And so those markers can include accusations of things like having wax images. And you do end up with this sense that there is the capacity to identify people and identify them as opponents of state through the accusation of witchcraft as well, which is quite different from the popular traditions where you have local accusations. 
you also have mm -hmm. traditions of political accusations that happen much closer to the court. So Natalia said earlier that uh, English witch cases come from the bottom up. There's more top-down uh, cases of uh, witch accusations in France. Is that? I would say that it's really heterogeneous. So you have different cases in different contexts. Mm -hmm. You have some cases that are in Lorraine and in Basque lands that are very different than the ones that in some ways get bound up with other kinds of legal questions. So you may have legal questions that we would think of as empirical, non-supernatural accusations like fraud alongside accusations that somebody has waxen images. And so the, the, the whole spectrum of accusation is quite entangled in this period, and very specifically in this period, such that you have particular markers and, and signs of participation in illicit rebellious activity that we might retroactively say is supernatural or not supernatural, but you'll have a continuum here where you have things that we would think of as almost sort of front page news about fraud and counterfeiting and plotting in different ways alongside accusations that we might think of as more supernatural, such as participating in a witch's Sabbath or being seen to do particular rituals with wax images. It seems like both could take somebody out and they took their pick. And then it seems like part of what's happening exactly as, as this discussion was just uh, emerging around the discernment question, which evidence do we take seriously in the moment? And that's what's being heavily debated in the life of print and in the universities and in different sites, uh, including the courts. What Where is the threshold for what constitutes evidence. And if that threshold is uh, potentially politically volatile, either in a sort of microcosm or at the level of state, how do we meaningfully move forward with that kind of an accusation? And that seems to shift over time in France, certainly. Uh, do you want to say anything about French depictions of witches in ballets as opposed to stage depictions of witches in England? Um, it looks to me like there are very similar stable questions. So there are elements certainly in the Queens where they give narrative descriptions of what I see in uh, costume design, for example. I'm looking at different kinds of sources, so it's a little bit tricky to say blanket-wise whether they're similar or not. What does happen is you have this shift between a much more classical witch, uh, sometimes called an enchantress, you also have a sliding happening between what might be called a fairy. So there's a way in which these potentially positive figures can become more and more maleficent and in fact then become deadly. So you have over the course of this period something that can be quite literary as a kind of reference and uh, learned in a particular way alongside popular tradition. Um, and then you have these... Um, Moments, for example, in Delivrance where everything is suddenly unveiled. So she may seem like a, a beautiful enchantress in a garden. Uh, in that case, she's uh, characterized also as Muslim, um, and it's set within the Holy Land in Palestine. And the knights who are going to Palestine as part of essentially the Crusades are enwrapped by her, and she manages to enchant them. 
And then all of a sudden, she suddenly appears to be, ah, this is a witch. And the ah. mm-hmm. scenery falls down, and we find ourselves in a cave, and we find out that this has been an enchantment. So and the, there's no doubt about that in in Queens, Mask of Queens, they're just witches. There's just no question of that, right? This is more with Joan of Arc. Yeah, think, yeah. Where, yeah, Joan of Arc is slowly revealed. Go on, VK. So that kind of sense that the, indi- that the clues take us to an increasingly dire position for the hero and that ultimately the witch in one form or other, and you do see the term by which she's described change over the course of the documents of the performance, um, eventually comes to be this horrifying, terrifying witch. And then in that revelation, the hero is able to overcome her power. You have a very reiterative way of defeating her. I have a question for you, John. Um, mm-hmm. How would you describe the witch music? I don't need to describe it. You're going to hear it in about five <laughs> seconds. Fabulous. Here then is John Caprario's dance called First of the Lords in its treble and bass source and Antic Mask in a version from the board lute book. Our performance here is reconstructed from those two sources with the inner parts by Christopher Verrett, and you can compare William Brada's version, which we play in the first episode of this series. Then, the first witch's dance by court lutenist and composer for the King's Men, Robert Johnson. This version is from Brada's 1617 collection of dance music published in Frankfurt. And the second witch's dance, with inner parts by Chris Verrett. The Musicians in Ordinary Renaissance Violin Band is Matt Antle, Brandon Choi, and Sheila Smythe violas. Laura Jones, bass violin. Me, John Edwards, on lute. All led by Christopher Verrett, violin.
Thank you.